Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Play to pod. Welcome to another episode of Plato Pod. This is Dr. Ruth Glyn Owen, and today we're bringing you our interview with Dr. Amanda Deganji. Dr. Amanda is a clinical associate professor at Arizona State University, and she specializes in developmental disabilities. She is a massive advocate for play-based intervention and play-based ABA, which is something that is a movement that is really starting to happen in the States and something that we really strongly support because we love play. And we think that you can still use science and you can still use evidence-based intervention whilst you're playing and having fun. So Dr. Amanda Deganji has been doing a lot of work on that over the last few years. So it's going to be great to speak to her. And that's something we're very lucky with and our, our friends around the world is that we've made some great friends all over the world that are really, really strongly committed to this kind of cause and, and to try and support families learn how to play with their child in a really effective way. So we're really looking forward to talking to Amanda. Thank you, Dr. Amanda Degandi, for coming on PlaterPod. Dr. Amanda is a clinical associate professor at Arizona State University over in the US. So, but actually, you're actually in Austin, aren't you? So, good morning, Austin. <laughs> yes, right now I'm right now I'm in Austin. I split my time between Arizona and and Texas. And for people that don't know the geography of the US, is that a big distance or a small distance? It is. Um, it is actually 1,001 mile from one house to the other. <laughs> wow. It takes about uh, 16 hours. Right. 16 so that's pretty much double what it would take from London to Scotland. So that's oh, wow. that's a long way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be commuting up and down between both our centers. No, it, it's, it's a good, it's a good air, air travel uh, <laughs> distance. Yeah. That's the thing about the US though, isn't it? It has the, the, the kind of commuter planes, whereas here we, we really don't have the distance to go to justify that. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do with young children with developmental differences? Sure. Um, so I'm at Arizona State and I teach online applied behavior analysis courses, but I have been a researcher and my research focus was infants and toddlers with developmental disabilities, most recently Down syndrome. I did some sabbatical work a few years ago, a couple years ago, I guess. I had a baby as young as four months old in my study, which was super fun to do. Um, mm. And uh, in private practice, my focus is on little people who are three and under with um, with or without a an official diagnosis, but who are displaying delays typically in uh, language and in play. Excellent. So that sounds really interesting. And um, working with the younger age group, that under threes and even under 12 months is a special interest of ours as well. And we're finding that we are getting a lot more referrals for that age group. But like we were discussing previously, there's not really as much research as there needs to be in that area. So we've been talking to parents across the UK in the first part of our podcast series and the access to health services and intervention is really limited here. I mean, it's it's quite varied between um, London, England and then Scotland mm. in terms of what people can get and what they're even entitled to. 
but it's still in comparison to the US is like it's completely completely different so typically what happens for parents in in Texas or Arizona when they first identify that the child has some kind of developmental delay and maybe autism particularly so in the United States there was a push several years ago for pediatricians at the 12 month well baby checkup to give an autism screener but um, it's just a quick little questionnaire for the parents and any child who either red flags on that particular screener or a child who maybe has a known delay. So when, for example, Down syndrome, we know either before or shortly after birth typically. So the, the first referral will often be to the early intervention services. All 50 states have zero to three intervention as, a, as an incentive program through the original uh, law, special education law. But they, they also, if they, if they end up red flagging for autism, you know, it depends obviously on the pediatrician, but often they're uh, referred to either a neurologist or a developmental pediatrician who would then potentially do the ADOS or um, some other kind of diagnostic assessment and give them a diagnosis. Um, in Texas, it's interesting because up until just a couple of years ago, I think, um, most of the developmental pediatricians or neurologists were uncomfortable giving a diagnosis to anybody under three, um, which made mm-hmm. it harder because then they, they, the applied behavior analysis is the primary um, form of intervention for children on the autism spectrum. And so they couldn't qualify for ABA through their insurance until they had the diagnosis, but no one was willing to give the diagnosis. So it was this strange little catch-22 but then that, that age is getting a little bit younger. I don't see as many, you know, one-year-olds in Texas as um, I think there are probably in Arizona. Uh, so it's very much, it depends on the state. It even depends on the actual community that people are in. Because in, in the U.S., diagnosis drives treatment, really. And that's quite different. I did a bit of work in Massachusetts when I was doing my research for my doctoral thesis. They were very, very heavy on um, diagnostics for children under under three, under two, really. So children could get services and then they could transition out of services at three, which is crazy when we look at the UK. Because, you know, if they get services before they're five, they're very lucky and it might only be 45 minutes of speech therapy every term. It, it was just very, very different to see that in action. And it's quite different across different parts of the states as well. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken to people in Florida, for instance, where it's really different. Right. Um, and the kind of the average age of diagnosis can be very different in, in every state. Um, but what services are families offered if their child does red flag for autism? And then how long are the wait lists in, in Texas, for instance? You know, it really does vary by community. Once they've received the diagnosis, uh, most of, at least in Texas and Arizona, it appears that the most of the, I guess I can't say most because I only really know my own communities, but in my communities, they're, the developmental pediatrician or the neurologist are very often re- referring for applied behavior analysis therapy. Um, there are other um, communities, though, that I'm aware of where they may not uh, refer for that because there's some kind of negative perception, sort of those antiquated perception of ABA that it's punitive mm-hmm. or it's creating little robots or you know, um, just kind of an uninformed misunderstanding, which is unfortunate because oftentimes in those communities, um, there really aren't any other services for Mm -hmm. the young children. The the early intervention services are available, but they're quite limited. It'll usually involve uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech, 
um, and then an early interventionist, but it's not as consistent or as intensive service as they would get with the ABA. So there's, it really just depends on the community where the children are coming from. Mm-hmm. But there were quite a lot of services in the States and there were a lot of options to choose from, I think, in most places. In the UK, it's quite interesting because applied behavior analysis has a very interesting history in terms of that kind of antiquated view of it being punitive and dog training and everything else right. um, and I think that stems from the fact it's not regulated in the same way as it is in the US and I think that that's part of the issue is that it's not got the best press I guess because I mean there are people that are trying to get regulation in place and that's great but then you can understand why people then or particularly professionals in the NHS and, and things like that don't want to advocate it or use it um, and really very limited access to ABA training and and anything kind of scientific or evidence-based for people that work in the field which is quite scary so yeah in terms of ABA being kind of bad word for some people um and it's very strange that you know even right. you know the the newer kind of versions of ABA where it's NDBRI approach national naturalistic developmental behavior intervention which is what we would class what we do as that's just not even recognized and people don't even know what that means and we spoke about that when you were in London as well so it's just a very different view on what what is evidence-based what can work how well researched something like ABA is and, and how you know the science of that intervention can really help these children to make massive progress so going back to your work in the field what are the therapies then that have you view as having the best outcomes for pre-fives with with language delays well it's exactly what you were just saying um it's the natural i think the naturalistic um approach is is well it's not easy to do but it has good outcomes for many children especially the little children i use well in my private practice exclusively a play-based aba approach so you know there are some folks Mm -hmm. that uh, aren't trained in that and can't really conceive of anything that's not you know sit down at the table kind of kind of therapy which is unfortunate because that then perpetuates that sort of bad Mm -hmm. reputation that some people have when you are able to teach the little person through kind of more of a play approach Mm -hmm. to what's going on it's much more naturalistic the opportunities for learning may not be as systematic I guess because it's when it's a child-led therapy then it's you're <laughs> at the mercy of whatever yeah. they pick up and want to play with today um and you, and you know i can shake and rattle this thing all day but if if she doesn't want to play with it then we're not playing with it so but the mm-hmm. opportunities are more realistic so the the potential for generalization is greater and one of the in- most interesting things that i've noticed just over the many many years that i've done exclusive pretty exclusively play-based is that it seems, while it's a challenge for the therapist, I always find a lot of my therapists who are very ABA Mm -hmm. trained are like, wait, what? You want me to do what? Um, but But the parents, when we're training parents, and I try to always use like a co-therapist mm-hmm. model where the parent is always with us throughout the session, the parents seem to be able to pick it up and do it pretty quickly. And that, I think, makes such a huge difference because the parents can then just sort of apply those strategies Mm -hmm. throughout the whole, all the time, all day. Um, So it's not just, here's your therapy hour and see you next week. It's a, here's your therapy hour and then mom and dad carry on 
um, throughout the rest of the day and the week. So um, I do think that parent involvement is key to success. And also for the really little children, it just doesn't make sense to try to have them do sort of the more traditional sit at the table ABA. It just that's potentially going to create more resistance on the part of the child um, and it's not naturalistic. And and who who can get a two-year-old to sit down for longer than like three seconds? I just don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I the, um, we yeah, we, we basically do everything you're saying there in terms of just being play-based and you have to be really creative and you have to think outside of the box and you have to leave your pride at the door and we always have parents in sessions as well. So, you know, that first, the first few sessions are sometimes a little bit awkward as our crazy therapist is singing songs <laughs> and doing mad things with bubbles and parishes and Play-Doh and there's poor parents seeing in the background going, oh my goodness. But since the pandemic, we've done everything online. So there's just right. been no escape. <laughs> so <laughs> we've basically been the camera in the room and we've just been, you know, you've got to get down, you've got to sing that song, you've got to do those silly actions. No, we're not recording you. It's all fine. <laughs> no one's ever going to hear about it again. But it is that idea of trying to be creative and, and thinking outside the box and using play to actually teach and use those those opportunities in play. And you can still use science in play. And that's okay. the important part of it. And a lot of people who are very used to maybe a bit more systematic table-based find that quite hard. But you absolutely can use the science of ABA and, and naturalistic developmental behaviour approach into every situation that you put yourself in with a child. And everything's an opportunity to learn. And particularly communication-wise, everything's an opportunity for communication. In terms of your research and your your work with the children you're supporting, what's been your most interesting or surprising research finding or outcome? I actually pulled it up, I told you, right before we we got together um, this morning, because I um, I think when I I mentioned a bit ago about my sabbatical research a few years ago was with infants and toddlers um, with Down syndrome, and... um, the most surprising thing was I, I did a, a pre and a post kind of a um, developmental assessment looking at mm-hmm. age equivalency and, you know, improvements in what would be kind of like an almost like an IQ score, but more um, from a developmental assessment. And I was actually really surprised to see such vast improvement over the children. There there were only four children um, in the in the initial part of the study. We added um, some other kiddos later, but the ones from the initial study, the therapy itself was only an, about an hour to an hour and a half a week. That was all I did. But the the parents, mostly moms, were there um, the whole time. And of the four, three of them, they gained so much in such a short time after only three months. They were making like these crazy changes in terms of their age equivalency to to the point that the two older girls that were part of the the four the original four actually got into the average range of functioning, which was, I mean, wow. both moms cried when they learned those results because they couldn't they they couldn't believe. But what was also interesting was that one of the the participants did not show such gains, just kind of continued on in the way that that they were going. And the difference, anecdotally speaking, but the difference that that I noted was that this particular child's mother was the only mother who was working outside the home. So she wasn't always in session and she wasn't always 
doing this. She was playing with him the way that we would when she could. But this particular child also had a sibling who was small. And um, so I don't know that, that this family was able to do as much on their own, whereas the other families were reporting, you know, hours and hours and hours spent practicing after I would leave. So I just feel like we, we obviously, we need so much more research. We need oh, big studies on this to, to take place, but it really does speak to the power of those parents being able to really, um, to really improve their child's skill. And what's interesting too, is that, so the older two that really made the most progress, you know, they had been having early intervention therapies for a while, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech. Um, and the parents had been doing a lot of things with them already, but there was something about that play-based ABA approach that really, I, you could just, can't really describe, but you could just see when the when the moms, mostly moms, would sort of catch on and be like, ah, okay. And so now they would really start to work with them and start to use the strategies that they would would see me using, um, and they were they they were doing it all the time because it's fun. Play is fun. There's nothing exactly. <laughs> it's not it's not some arduous task that we're asking them to do. No. It's not sitting at a table and doing picture cards. Right, over and exactly. Over again. And I think it's finding that click. And a lot of parents find it tricky at the beginning to know what their child enjoys because maybe they're not playing with toys in the in the typical way. Um, and that can be tricky. And that's something that once you get that parent to and make that click to understand what that child actually really enjoys playing with and how they like to play with that thing could just be. I don't know, it could be like a, a coaster and spinning it round. It doesn't have to be like a big toy. Um, right. And once they've got into their child's interest, the, the power of that and the opportunities you can create and the teaching that you can do through the things that the child finds motivating is enormous, really. And it's the power of play and the power of parents, isn't it? And like you say, there does need to be a lot more research, a lot more funding, and particularly because it's low intensity as well. I mean, we have low intensity programs because there's no choice here. We don't get any funding as a charity, nothing from the government, do our own fundraising and grants, but people do have to pay privately for our services at a lower rate than other private services because we subsidise it. But most people can't afford to do anything intensive, so we really do have to have parents on board for, for that to be effective. And, you know, it does become basically 50-hour-a-week programme because the parents are doing it all the time at home right. and they never really stop. That's right, that's right. And there's the generalisation part that's really important as well because I think sometimes teaching children discrete skills in one setting with one person and one maybe one resource one stimulus doesn't really help a child to generalize at all so if you start with the generalization you do it with lots of different things that child's going to make progress and, and those gains are going to be bigger and faster as well so I guess it's probably going to be the same answer then <laughs> and my next question was what's been your most enjoyable project <laughs> yes that was my most enjoyable project if I could spend the rest of my life just um, playing on the floor with babies I would do it because it was so <laughs> much fun and I think the thing that I enjoyed the most about it was along the lines of what you were saying earlier that you really have to think outside the box you have to be really creative I didn't know I mean I, I came in with my own set of standardized toys with every with every play session um, partly to generate interest you know because um, if it was their own toy that they see all the time they might have been less interested mm. so 
and different toys were targeting different skills that I was trying to target. So some were targeting more, you know, fine motor, because that certainly is an issue with many children on uh, with Down syndrome. And then uh, some were designed for more language. Um, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And so you had to, you had to be on and thinking on your feet the whole time. And it made it um, a lot more, it just made it a lot more fun because I was constantly having to adjust my plan based on what the child wanted. I had one little one in particular that might be of all the children I've ever worked with, the least interested in and complying with my request. It was almost like she was enjoying it until I put some kind of demand on her. And even if it was something that she, you know, she's like reaching to put something into something and I say, Oh, put, you know, put it in. And then she's like, no, you asked me, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and so that was so much fun to just try to, just to try to figure out that little tiny mind and get, get around it to, in order to teach was so much fun. Um, so in terms of thinking about, you know, families that we're maybe going to be reaching with this podcast and they're probably likely going to be in the UK or maybe other areas that there aren't the same kind of level of services as there might be in some of the gold standard states. If you could give advice to parents who maybe don't have like an intensive program available and they've just started to have concerns about their little one's development, what would be your top three tips? Wow, that's a really good question. <laughs> well, if they're is an opportunity of any kind, even if it's something to read or a YouTube video or some kind of training to get some of the, the basics. One of the things that is kind of, I've heard it from professionals and parents alike it's with regard to children on the autism spectrum is that, you know, play is often a deficit for children on the spectrum. It's, you know, one of the diagnostic criteria even. And so these children may not be playing. So, you know, they've, you've got your whatever little toys that typically you would see a child really show interest in, but a child on the spectrum may not show the same interest. So then people don't know where to start because they say, well, he doesn't like to play or she doesn't want to play. And so why should I, how can I, and then how, why should I? And so getting some kind of training or information, I think, would be the first step. Because I even just saw, I think it was on Twitter just the other day, someone said something to the effect of, you know, how do you teach someone to play? That seems really hard. And I guess it, it probably is hard, but it is absolutely doable. So keeping that, probably the second tip would be to keep in mind that play is just a skill like any other skill, you know, whether it's tying shoes, brushing teeth, speaking it's, it's a skill that can be, can be taught, and there is research. There's research from back in the 90s even that shows us that once a child learns to play, that they play more, which strongly suggests that they, that they must find it enjoyable, right? Why else would they do it if they didn't find it enjoyable? Mm -hmm. so, um, so it's definitely a worth it kind of a thing. Um, and, you know, for, for families in areas like, the UK, as you have, were telling me, that maybe don't have as many services, have some limitations in the services. Advocacy and getting involved in that. We had a research project down in Costa Rica several years ago, um, and the it was the parent group, the parent advocacy group, that kind of brought us in and got us interested in this, not funding or anything. 
self-funded project, uh, but we got to go to Costa Rica, so I'm not complaining. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, the the services were minimal there as well, especially in certain parts of the country that were um, more remote from, you know, it was only the one uh, children's hospital that was doing diagnosis and things like that. But but this parent advocacy group had grown and grown and grown, and they were really pushing. And so the, we presented uh, the results of our research at this huge conference um, that involved the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Health, the presidents of universities, um, you know, that so to try to bring people together to look at all the ways to improve the service and recognizing that you know, diagnosis is, yes, the first step for the families, but we have to have the service, which means we have to have the service providers. So the universities have to provide the training um, and the, the service providers need to have satellite offices and, you know, the families need to have that access. So I think in places where maybe there's not as much of that parent, I don't underestimate the power of parents. You said it a minute ago, the, you know, the power of parents who want to see change to help their children, they can get a lot done. Mm -hmm. And it is, and it's trying to make sure that, you know, parents are supported in themselves too, to have the strength to actually have to fight all the time. And and that's the big difference, I think, between the US and the UK. And that's what I looked at in my doctoral thesis was, you know, what kind of impact does it have on parents' aspirations for and perspectives of their child? when they have services versus when they really don't have any. And I think the biggest difference between the US and the UK was the fact that in the US, parents had a pathway and they kind of knew there were services and they knew that they could access them and these services would help their child. And it was kind of a bit of a map, really, a way forward. Um, whereas in the UK, there really is very little and children have been left behind. And parents are having to fight every step of the way. And really, they only know about some of the services that are out there due to Google, because a lot of the health services don't actually even advocate any independent service, although they can't provide it themselves. So it's a bit of a mess, really. But it is, yeah, I think parent power is the way forward and trying to trying to empower parents as well by training and coaching so they know what's right for their child and they know what works for their child. And some of the families we've had on here on the podcast, you know, they've got older children, they've been through that journey. So just being able for them to reflect on what's happened and what's worked for them and, and being able to put their stories out there for others to listen to, I hope is going to be really powerful as well. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, even in the in the U.S., you know, we do have a lot of services, like, like you said, um, particularly in comparison to some other places. But it has that has not always been the case. And um, I was lamenting earlier that, in the insurance funding, which is what most families use to access service for their children on the autism spectrum, that's only mandated for children with autism in most, in almost all places. Um, but that didn't, that started with a parent, one parent group um, in one state that said, you all should fund this. And one of the legislatures in that state, um, his grandson had autism and it was his um, daughter or daughter-in-law it was his family member who was part of that advocacy group and that's how it got the insurance mandate got passed the first time in the first state all it takes is that one <laughs> because then then it empowers more parents to get involved in other places and to really um, push for that and and you're right in terms also knowing what knowing what to advocate for mm -hmm. um, being able to uh, you know separate the, the wheat from the chaff separate the evidence-based 
practices and those practices that are going to be more effective from things that are more pseudosciencey, and and that mm -hmm. is the real danger of Google, um, yeah. in that there's so there's so much pseudoscience being spread, and and especially I think for parents of children with autism because um, it just seems to be so rife with snake oil salesmen, mm -hmm. um, which yeah. is so sad. Yeah, and it's because it's such a unique condition in each individual that it presents in that there isn't a one-size-fits-all and it is difficult to find the right fit for your child and it takes time and professionals need to think outside the box, make an effort, see each child as a unique individual. So it's kind of easy for sometimes for somebody to put something out there that's a cure-all and it's going to, you know, because people are going to buy into that and it's dangerous and it's it's really sad. I think is it the American Medical Council produced a report or produced regular reports on what therapies or what treatments have, you know, the evidence based? Yes, the um, American Medical Association, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Centers for Disease Control have all... Um, endorsed, for example, ABA. Um, and then we have different organizations. There's um, the National Professional Development Center for Autism Spectrum Disorders. It's out of the University of North Carolina. Um, they put out an evidence-based practice list. Actually, it's a really good resource because not only do they, they review the literature pretty with some regularity, um, every so often, every so many years, you know, they evaluate all the research that's been done with children on the spectrum and evaluate it according to some pretty well-known standards of quality in terms of the research. But then also they, they produce the list and they're in collaboration with um, another organization that then provides free training on each of those evidence-based practices. So all you have to do is, you know, kind of register for it with your email and create a password. And then for free, you've got all these trainings. Some of them are, you know, two or three hours long for antecedents, interventions, and discrete trial training, and reinforcement, and just all the different things. Um, not all, not not just ABA, but sort of all of the different potential interventions. Um, so it's a really good resource to go to to determine well what's what has been studied um, in, in with high quality research, and then the resource in terms of learning about it and getting the training on it I think is really a really great resource yeah and I think I've, I've heard of that before and I think what we'll do is maybe put a link to that on our website actually because I think that'd be really useful for parents and professionals we don't really have an equivalent here we do have a research autism it's called but it isn't quite the same in that it doesn't give detailed information on each of the interventions it rates them in a slightly different way because I think American research quality standards are slightly different from the UK and it doesn't map over so they certainly don't have any training available on that website so that's a great one to kind of know for us to have on our, our links. Was there anything else you wanted to discuss or chat about or add to anything that we've talked about? I'm super excited to, that you invited me and to, to get to chat with you and talk about the things that I love. Yeah, it's been, it's been lovely to speak to you. And I think it's just nice to talk to someone that's in another country that's got great services and <laughs> and um, is really passionate about the cause. And in a similar way, we are as well. And that power of play and that power of getting parents involved and two key things in terms of the, the progress that we see the children that we work with making. And it's nice that it's mapping over to another country and, and different client groups and 
I think that's something that hopefully will start to take traction and, and really kind of run in lots of different places as well. I think people are starting to see that. I think there's much less focus on that kind of tabletop work for toddlers. Um, <laughs> like I say, who's going to get a two-year-old right. to sit at a table? Um, and I think there's there's much more emphasis on parent involvement as well. And there has to be over here. Like there really isn't anything else that is available. Parents really do have to do mostly everything on their own. So but with a bit of guidance from services like ours, hopefully it will make a massive difference. So thank you very much, Dr. Amanda Deganji, for coming on Play to Pod. And we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. That was such a lovely chat that we had with Amanda. And thank you so much for, for coming on Play to Pod. And it was just so great to talk to someone that's way across the other side of the world who still believes all the same things that we do and um, has seen how play can really be supportive of children's development in a really, really, really effective way. If you think that we might be able to help you, we offer a range of services and advice and assessments. And we are on www.blueskyautism.com and our training website is www.playtotalk.co.uk. The world could fall down, it's gonna be a